At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our series, Divided, Seeking Unity in a Fractured World, we're coming face-to-face with the division that seems to define the culture of our nation, our communities, and even our churches. Join us as we turn to 1 Corinthians to discover the unifying power of a people who follow Christ. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. That's where we're going to be, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we continue our series, uh, Divided. And um, I want to ask the question, how many of you guys are fast food lovers? Anybody love fast food in here? Be proud. Raise your hand, right? But, uh, man, when you think about fast food, and they put a commercial up on the TV, right? Um, I don't know if they do this anymore. I don't watch much TV, but they put these commercials up for fast food, and they, they show you this incredible burger, right? Two patties, all beef, cheese on top, the pickle, the lettuce, the onion. They, the bun looks perfect. It's flame grilled as they flip it over, and the flame goes, right? Anybody tracking with me? This is what we see on TV, right? We see on a commercial or on a display or on a picture, right? Or you, you see Taco Bell, they, they advertise these big stuffed tacos that are beautiful, and it's like, that's what I'm going to get. And, and it makes you think, man, I want to go get that. I'm going up the road, hitting up the McDonald's or Burger King or Wendy's or wherever, and I got to have one of those because it looks incredible. So you get up there, you get in the line, you're all excited, right? And then you order this double quarter pounder, let's say, with cheese, right? Because that's my go-to. <clears throat> but you order this. And when you get up to the window, they hand you this bag, and they're like, oh, here's your order. And it looks, you know, maybe like it, they might have run it over. Um, maybe. You know, it's like, okay, we, we can work with this. So we open it up, we look at it, and you open that box, and you're like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. Like the, the patties are sliding off the bun. The bun is kind of like mashed down, right? And then you open the bun and you're like, oh, like, is it grade A beef? Is it? I mean, anybody want to tell me? I mean, it, it looks like it may have been cut from the loin of a goat and then ground up, right? <laughs> so you're literally like looking at this and you're going, oh, this is not what they showed me on the commercial, right? It's just not. And you, you, you still eat it, obviously. You have to, right? You have to. Or you get the chicken nuggets, and this is the great thing. They make these chicken nuggets. They, they like, dump them on the commercial, and they fall, and they... Tsh- it's like, wow, those look delicious. Then you get there. And do you realize they're, like, poured from a bag of pink fluid? You know, that's how they make those chicken nuggets. I did the research. Somebody told me. It, it, but it's not what it appears, right? It's not what they make it out to appear to you on a commercial or on a picture. And as we look at our text today, we'll see something similar to this. Paul wants the Corinthian believers to know that what the world is portraying as wisdom and power is what God reveals to to be foolishness. What the world portrays to be wisdom or as wisdom and power is what God reveals to be foolishness. Well, it may seem like the way of the world is sensible and wise, right? Sometimes when we look at the world, it may be sensible and wise, but God says it's nothing but madness and folly. We're in the last part of our series where we're taking a look at the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter 
to the Corinthian church, and we've called the series Divided Seeking Unity in a Fractured World. How many of you guys know that our world is fractured? It is, right? Everywhere we look, anywhere we go, we can see that the world is fractured. Whether it's in politics, whether it's in the church, we're divided, or, or whether it's in relationships, we're divided, or, or whether it's in, uh, you name it, we can be divided. I, I could have you a conversation with you about sports, and I guarantee you in maybe 10 minutes we would be divided. But we see this all over the place. In our world, we understand it's not breaking news that we live in a fractured world. So that's why we can't look to the world for wisdom. We can't look to our world, the people around us in the world, for wisdom. Instead, we need, to, um, we need God to speak into our world, right? We need God to speak into our homes. We need God to speak into our church. We need God to speak into our families. We need God to speak into our relationships, into our life. We need to go to God for wisdom so that we can experience the reconciliation and reunification that God has purposed for us. So today we're going to continue looking at Paul's words and his letter to the church of Corinth and try to get a little bit more wisdom from this first chapter. <clears throat> As we move on from last week's text, uh, last week we looked at, even in the, uh, the last verse, verse 17, how Paul was writing. He said, man, I'm glad that I didn't baptize any of you so that you cannot say, hey, I was baptized by Paul. And so we see in the later part of that verse, verse 17, this is where Paul begins to talk about wisdom when he says this. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied in power. I don't know about you guys, but that helps me right now because I don't have to speak to you guys in eloquent wisdom. That just takes a big burden off me, right? But before I jump into verse 18-25, we need to see how... Paul introduces the upside-down wisdom and power of the cross. We need to see how he literally looks at this upside-down view of the cross. It doesn't come with words of eloquent wisdom, he says. And it doesn't come with the kind of power that you would expect the cross to come with. What is normally seen as wisdom and power in this world is not consistent with what we see here, with what we consider wise and powerful in the kingdom of heaven. It completely flips it, right? It's completely flipped the way God's kingdom, the unlikely, the weak, the rejected, are the types of individuals that the Father, father tends to use. He tends to use those that are weak, that, that are rejected, and these type of in, individuals he uses. So since there are so many voices claiming to have wisdom in our world, and since we all easily get deceived, I want to ask you guys a question this morning. Where do you find wisdom? When you think about that question, where do you actually go for wisdom? Where do you look for wisdom? Where do you seek wisdom? Where do you find wisdom in your life? I'm not talking about like a Jeopardy's fact 
you know, going on Jeopardy type wisdom where you know the facts. I'm talking about wisdom. Wisdom about love. Wisdom about truth. Wisdom about relationships. Wisdom about purpose. About identity. About the most significant matters of the human experience. And so the question is, are you finding wisdom in the right things? Where do you go? Do you go to the next self, self-help book or, or do you follow this preacher because you think he's wise and, and I'm going to go ahead and listen to every one of his sermons and hopefully you can get good information from that. Do you, do you watch the news to find wisdom? There you go. You call your mom, right? Why not? But where do you seek wisdom, true wisdom about life and about things that matter? Where do you look for wisdom? And the story of the gospel shows us that true knowledge is found in a very unlikely place. Paul helps us see in 1 Corinthians 1 that God's wisdom and power are in the message of Christ crucified. His wisdom and power are in the crucifixion of Christ, the cross. As we look into uh, verses 18 through 25, we respond to God's word in two ways. And our two points today are inversions of one another. So you think about an inversion, right? These uh, tables that you lock your feet in and then you lean back and they just flip you upside down. They freak me out, right? But that's what we're going to look at is these two points, they're inversions of each other. And the first one, the Apostle Paul, he calls us to confess our wise foolishness of the world. He calls us to confess our wise foolishness of the world. Read with me in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? When we look at this passage, having set a contrast between worldly wisdom and the cross, Paul moves to several arguments pertaining to this line of thinking throughout this section of his letter. Paul is pointing out that the cross is not something that we can add human wisdom to. You understand what I'm saying? The cross... Is not something that we can take our human wisdom and add it to the cross. We can't take like a, a steak and add salt and pepper to it to make it more savory. It's not like a coloring sheet that we can say, oh, here's the cross. I'm going to take this coloring sheet and I'm going to color in shades of color to make it more appealing or make it better. We can't add human wisdom to the cross. Instead, the cross stands in complete opposition to human wisdom. And we're going to look at that. In fact, the cross is considered absolutely irrational when viewed through the lens of human wisdom. It's completely looked at as, as, as uh, irrational. But, but faith helps us see that the cross becomes the only way to make sense of the world around us. We have to look at our faith the faith that we have 
to make sense of the world around us, the way of God's love, the way of redemption, the way of God's wisdom, and the manifestation of his power. We have to look to God. As we talk about wisdom, I want to share with you a definition about godly biblical wisdom. It's this. Godly biblical wisdom is the proficient application of biblical principles to one's life, resulting from a Godward heart orientation. It's the proficient application of biblical principles to one's life, resulting from a Godward heart orientation. This wasn't the kind of wisdom that the culture of Corinth embraced. It wasn't the kind of wisdom that they were actually looking at. When they, when they thought of wisdom, they were mostly concerned with gaining intellectual knowledge. They wanted to use it to be um, leveraged, to build up their own influence and power. For them, wisdom was an instrument for self-centered advancement. Of course, if you look at any church that's in this culture, naturally, these churches would be tempted to kind of embrace this type of thinking, right? I mean, if it's all around them and they're in this culture, they would start to be tempted to embrace this type of thinking. And it starts to make them not think about the ways of God, but to start thinking about wisdom in other things. And it's a complete opposition of the ways of Jesus. So we find Paul wrestling for the affections of the believers in Corinth because of where they were finding their purpose and value. When we look at verse 18, the word for here is a connective word. Paul wants to link what he's about to say back to verse 17, where he wrote, not with words. The Greek word logos there. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now here in verse 18, he says this, For the words, again, of the cross is folly of those who are perishing. Paul's pointing out that there's Logos speech and Logos message. And so he's saying, not with words or speech of eloquent wisdom. And then he says, for the word or the message of the cross is folly. They're mutually exclusive here. But Paul sets forth two groups. Those who are perishing, who are outside of Christ, those who are non-believers. And then he sets those who are being saved, the believers, right? The people who are coming to Christ, And those who believe that the message of the gospel is foolish, ironically, they demonstrate for themselves their own foolishness since they're perishing. But for those who are in Christ through faith, the gospel is the power of God. And he says the same thing to the church of Rome. He says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jews first, and then also to the Gentiles or the Greeks. Then he quotes 
from the prophet Isaiah 29, 14 to show God's desire to expose the foolishness of the world, showing them that this is not uh, some new thing. Instead, this is something that God spoke about long ago in Isaiah, hundreds of years before, that he was going to destroy human wisdom by the way of the cross. And so Paul here, he sees this, the original context of the Isaiah passage plays out well to Paul's argument. Paul clearly sees the Isaiah passage as having been fulfilled in the cross. And so in verse 20, Paul continues the thought by offering rhetorical questions. His point is that their intellectual capacities are ultimately nothing more than foolishness if they miss what it is to know God. If we miss what it is to know God, it is foolish, right? Imagine for a minute, right, if you were able to decide how the Messiah came. What, what would that look like for you? Like if you were to say, hey, God says, hey, you know, so-and-so, how do you want the Messiah to come and save the world? What would that look like for you? For me, I look at it and I'm like, man, the way I think about it is this. Here's God coming across this field in battle, right? And he's riding this huge Clydesdale horse. The guy is just huge in stature, muscle, you know. He's got long flowing hair and it's in the wind. And he's got this ginormous sword. And he's coming to rescue humanity. This is the way I picture the Messiah. He's strong, you know. And this is like, man, there's an army behind him. But he doesn't need him. It's just a visual thing, right? And, and he, he's coming to save the world. Or maybe I would picture it like this, man. God's coming down on a cloud and he's just like, whoa, there's the glory of God and, and he's floating on this cloud around and he's gonna save all of humanity and he's got this crown and this big robe and he's this large guy and he's like, I'm gonna save everyone who believes in me. If I had to pick what the Messiah looked like or how he would come to save us, what would your picture look like? The idea that the Messiah would come as a baby, lowly in a manger, in a dirty stall, in a barn, he came as a baby, was laid in a manger. He, he lived a common life. He discipled a small amount of people. And then to die as a criminal on the cross. This type of thinking seems foolish, doesn't it? It seems foolish to my human wisdom. I'm like, wait, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Why would God choose to send the Messiah like this? Who in their right mind would dream this up? Only God himself. The cross is, in fact, folly to humanly or human wisdom. But it is God's folly, folly that is at the same time, his wisdom and power. And I think like the Corinthian church, the believers, we too can get maybe caught up 
in the so-called wisdom of our world, right? We can get caught up in, in, in our day to, to allow the people to talk to us and, and give us wisdom or, or we get influenced by certain things in our community and, and we look to other things for wisdom and we're, we start getting off the trajectory of God and we start listening to other things and all of a sudden, like the church of Corinth, we are literally tempted to listen to the things around us instead of listening to the wisdom of God. And I want to know how many dead ends do we have to experience before we realize it? How many dead ends do we actually have to go through? How much destruction? How much division? How many things do we have to see in the world around us before we actually wake up and start to see that we need to turn to God for wisdom? That we will not find wisdom in the world around us. So let me go back to the question I asked a few minutes ago, where do you find wisdom? Where do you find wisdom? Where have you adopted the wisdom of the current culture into your life? Where do you need to let that go? So many times I think we buy into the narrative that division is the norm, right? Because we see it all around us that being divided in every relationship is eventually going to come, that that's okay. And we buy into that narrative. We buy into the narrative that depravity is nothing to avoid. Immorality is okay. There's nothing wrong with it. And hate is justified. But God says it's utter foolishness. And when we look at the world around us, this is what we see every day. And it's easy for us when we see it every day, just like the Church of Corinth. It's easy for us to cuddle up to that and say, oh, I'm okay with that. That's wisdom. It's safe. It's comfortable. It's okay for it to happen around me. It's, it, even if I don't partake in it, it's okay. I'm, I'm going to look the other way. And we're so surrounded by it that we actually get comfortable in it. And it's natural for us. But it's not the way of Jesus and his gospel because the way of the world is not actually the good news. And so maybe it's something else for you. But I would ask you to examine your heart today. Examine your life and say, where am I okay with the worldly wisdom where do I need to let that go? Where do I need to start going back to God and looking for wisdom from him? We respond in two ways. First, the Spirit of God must help us confess our wise foolishness to the world or of the world. But as we confess something, here's where that inversion comes. As we confess something, we must also profess something, right? While we come to grips with the foolishness we've embraced as wisdom, we also need to profess the foolish wisdom of the cross. We need to profess the foolish wisdom of the cross. And what does that even mean? Read with me in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God 
through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. You see, it's no accident that the world can't know God through human wisdom. It's not like, man, it it was just an accident Like, the the world, you cannot know God through human wisdom. God has sovereignly rendered the wisdom of this world to be foolish, and he did that on purpose. God, in his wisdom, has declared that all people, even intellectuals, lack the saving knowledge and wisdom of God. Romans 3, 10 through 11 says this, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. I hate to cut it to you, but not one of us in this room is righteous. No one. And because everyone without exception stands in need of a Savior, stands in need of salvation, it says this, it pleased God through the folly of what he preached to save those who believe. It pleased him. Why? Because he's the only way. No one can boast in themselves. There's nothing that you can do. You can't get wiser. You can't do works. You can't do anything to get to the Savior besides through the cross. It's the only way. And Paul's saying here that salvation comes through believing what has been proclaimed. Even if it seems foolish according to human wisdom. The foolish message that has been preached is that salvation comes through Christ crucified. And what Paul does here is he divides the perishing from verse 18 into two classes, Jews and and Greeks or Gentiles. And some believe he does this because they reflect the two basic ways that humanity, in its uh, right mind, I guess, through wisdom, is religious. He says the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. And why does he say that? The common Jewish messianic uh, expectation was that God would act powerfully on their behalf um, as he had their basically done in his past. That he would do these big, powerful things as they asked, and he would do them when they asked because it would show his power. It would validate him. So they repeatedly asked, all the way we see it um, through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They desperately wanted him to authenticate himself in order to validate his message. And why is that wrong? I mean, honestly, can you blame them? They literally have seen God do powerful things all throughout, and they've seen him do amazing signs as they've asked. But why is it wrong here? They knew God had acted powerfully in the past, But their deception was that they believed that they had God's ways all figured out. They had believed that they had God all figured out. And they were like, man, we figured this out. God's going to do this. And he was going to repeat the exodus of Egypt with an even greater display of power and splendor to um, to the Romans. So they had thought that they had God figured out. Anybody else have God figured out? 
I know I don't. And then we look at the Greeks. Greeks sought wisdom. They were passionate about every kind of learning. They loved knowledge and understanding. Is there anything wrong with that? Not in my eyes. Man, we should all want to be wiser, right? We all need knowledge. We all should be seeking wisdom and knowledge. This was one of the highest values within their culture. And as a result, they made incredible advances for all human civilization. But here's the kicker. Godly biblical wisdom is not in view here. Instead, it was the kind of wisdom where praise is lavished on humans for their stunning abilities, for the way they spoke, for all different kinds of things. It was lavished on human beings instead of God. Their idolatry was to conceive God as ultimate reason, meaning that what we deem to be reasonable. And so both of them were looking at this wrong. And these two basic idolatries that are still with us today, the demand for power and the insistence on wisdom for us and from our point of view. Do we still see that today? And we still see that people demand power and, and they want wisdom. Why? For their own gain or, or for them to get higher up the ladder. And the cross of Christ, the wisdom of God, is foolishness and stumbling block because it doesn't make sense within the world's paradigm. Who in their right mind wants to embrace a wisdom that lands on the cross? Who wants to embrace a wisdom that lands them on death row? It, it doesn't make sense to people, right? Why would you want to embrace this? In, in the minds of the world, wisdom is supposed to be powerful, right? It's supposed to be something greater. And the cross is an upside-down wisdom that appears to be very foolish. In the ancient world, the image of an individual being crucified was horrible. It was a horrific sight. It was a form of capital punishment that was reserved for insurrectionists and criminals. And people thought, how could the Christ be crucified? The Messiah is supposed to be someone that comes to deliver people, right? Deliver people from their bondage. How could this be the Messiah? There's no way. And the Greeks emphasized external strength and power. So the cross, a display of utter weakness and therefore foolishness, the Jews have known Deuteronomy 20, 23, which says, His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the, next, or the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. So they would have looked at that passage, which they knew, and they would have said, that doesn't make sense. He's cursed by God. Why would this be the Messiah? There's no way he can be God's anointed. And it's easy to see how they landed in the places they did. It's easily understood through the earthly wisdom or through human wisdom. And, it, and the same is true of us when we adopt the wisdom of the world. When we adopt the wisdom of the world, we land in worldly places, right? When we allow ourselves to be constantly inundated 
with the things of the world, when we constantly are looking to the world for wisdom, we land ourselves in worldly places, and it's foolishness. Paul says, all are invited, both Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, through the preaching of Christ crucified, but only those who are called are drawn. The message of Christ crucified is the transforming power of those who are called in what is called foolishness to the world is embraced as wisdom by those who belong to God. It's the power. What is foolish to human eyes is actually the wisdom of God. What is weak according to the human standard, the cross, is what actually unleashes the power of God. In the cross, God outsmarted his human creatures and thereby nullified their wisdom. In the same cross, God also overpowered the enemies with lavish grace and forgiveness and thereby divested them of their strength. And the truth is, it's upside down according to the world, isn't it? It's completely upside down. I'm going to end with this as the band comes up. I want you to think about this. We gather here each week in a church to worship God. We gather here And I want you to think about what we believe and what it looks like to maybe a non-believer. We believe that God created the world perfect. He created all things, right? We messed it up. So the eternal Father sent his eternal Son, God in the flesh, to be born of a virgin, live a perfect life of obedience to the Father, And then, be murdered on a cross that was meant for criminals. Then after three days, the Christ would rise from the grave, show himself to a bunch of people, and then return to the Heavenly Father, which would usher in the sending of the Holy Spirit so that the full measure of those called would be saved and receive the Spirit as a deposit of their place in God's kingdom. Think about that. That's what we believe. That's the way God planned to save the world? It sounds like foolishness. It may sound a bit crazy even. But it's the wisdom and power of God. It is the wisdom and power of God. God's wisdom is only foolish to the world or to a world that is blind to the truth. God's foolish wisdom is that we cannot reason ourselves to God. We cannot do anything better to God. We can't get wiser. We can't do works. We can't do anything on our own to get to God. It's only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we can actually put our faith and trust in him, and we can know for a fact that we can spend eternity with him one day. And so my question for you again is, where do you find wisdom? Where are you looking for wisdom? 
we find the wisdom of obedience in Jesus obeying his Father at the cross. We find the wisdom of selflessness, how he gave himself for us at the cross. We find the wisdom of grace where we didn't deserve it at the cross. We find the wisdom of love, that he loved us so much that he was willing to die for us at the cross. We find the wisdom of humility, to die a criminal's death on the cross. We find the wisdom of self-control at the cross. We find the wisdom of forgiveness at the cross. We find the wisdom of salvation at the cross. We find God at the cross. And so my question is, where do you find wisdom? Do you know him? Maybe you're here today and you're like, John, this, what you said just sounds hokey and crazy and I don't know what you're talking about. And I would love to have a conversation with you afterwards because I don't want you to leave today without knowing Jesus as your personal savior and knowing what he did for you on the cross. Do you know him? Do we follow him? And I'll end with this. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says this. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? This is where we find wisdom in God. Let me pray. God, we are so humbled by who you are. That you loved us so much that you sent your son to die for us, God. And every time I think about that, God, it chokes me up. Because you humbled yourself. And so, God, I pray for each individual in this room this morning. I pray if there's one here that doesn't know you, God, that they wouldn't leave without knowing what you did on the cross for them. That you didn't just stay on the cross. You didn't stay in the tomb, God that you rose from the dead for us and that you want to spend eternity in heaven with us, but you want a relationship with us. So God, I pray that if there's one here that needs to put their faith and trust in you, I pray that they wouldn't leave here today without that, God. God, we love you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the cross. We're humbled by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.